It's Thursday, April 7th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Allen. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Charlie Travers, from income investor James Early, and from Motley Fool Global Gains, Tim Hansen. Guys, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. China is banning ads, and Google is giving YouTube a makeover. We will get to those stories in a minute. But first, as we are taping this, Another earthquake has hit Japan. Uh, Stocks dropped immediately uh, after the reports. Uh, They seem to be pairing their losses. We will obviously continue to keep an eye on this, but Tim Hansen, um, just any thoughts on the investing angle of all this? You know, I think the the takeaway is that a lot of investors have been out there saying that this is an opportunity to buy Japanese stocks. Warren Buffett said something along those lines. I've Mm -hmm. been arguing with some of the guys in-house here about, about this, but you know what this reinforces is that there, there are so many variables still at work in Japan uh, between you know both the natural disaster angle as well as the, the the nuclear power angle that it probably still isn't quite the time to be confidently plowing money in, into the Japanese stock market. I mean we're taking a, a, a wait and see attitude. We've got some companies on our watch list, but um, you know it's still an unstable situation there, and I think it will continue to be so. All right, moving on. The Chinese government has banned outdoor ads that promote a lavish lifestyle and include words such as supreme, royal, high class, and luxury. Offenders face a fine of more than $4,500. Tim Hansen, you've been to China. What was your first thought when you saw this story? Well, on the surface, it seems almost comical, and it doesn't seem like it makes any sense about why why they would do something like this. But as I've said before, and you know, in this forum and in others, everything in China starts to make a lot more sense if you start to look at the government from one angle, and that angle is self-preservation, which is to say they're going to do whatever it takes to stay in power. So, what does the story mean from that angle? Basically, it's they don't want. China's very aff- few very affluent consumers and these luxury companies to basically be taunting the 900 million to a billion people in China who th- this is not even this is not just out of their monthly budget range it's completely unattainable for some of these products you know like Louis Vuitton bags Ferragamo ties those sorts of really high end luxury items there's a huge market for them in China it's estimated to be you know 80 to 100 billion dollars over the next 5 some odd years but again, most of China is being left behind by the economic development there. And the government, citing social harmony, which is basically their, their code word for we don't want people to overthrow us or yeah. protest in Tiananmen Square again, uh, you know, ho- hopes maybe that, that you know, by taking down these ads, they won't infuriate so many other Chinese consumers. James? Well, Chris, according to ChinaToday.com, which is where I go for honor, honest, accurate news every time, um, the legislation also targets the abuse of idioms, which – is kind of bizarre. Uh, but anywhere but China, this would, would be laughable, but the Chinese somehow tend to go along with this sort of thing. I mean, you, normally it would be like forbidden fruit becomes all the more desirable, but I wouldn't see, I wouldn't be surprised if this put a material dent in, in these luxury good maker sales there. I was going to say, so what do you do if your coach or Tiffany, or as we've talked about before, the automakers who are trying to increase their presence in China, if you're Ford or GM and you're trying to sell higher-end cars, what do you do? Well, presumably, this just the 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 target is is ads that appeal to sort of the snob appeal. So you could you could try to tout the practicality or functionality or benefits, I guess, of your product. But for those those things, those are sort of snob products to begin with. So you're right. I don't know what they do. I disagree with James in the sense that I think this is going to have any effect on on sales. At the end of the day, you know, luxury consumers in China know the brands that they want and, and probably are going to go seek them out and find them whether they can advertise or or not. 
Um, what will be interesting to see, and, and again, this doesn't really target domestic Chinese companies at all. The people who have to obey this regulation are largely foreign companies mm-hmm. um, who are going to play ball basically because they don't want other regulations to be thrown at them. China has long leveraged you know, its potential to be this massive market to sort of strong arm foreign companies into, into playing by their rules. Um, in terms of, of you know, what happens next, I th- you know, it'll be interesting to see if this is followed up um, by a sort of more surreptitious effort to stop government officials from being set, such ostentatious consumers in China. You know, if you drive along Chinese roads, you'll see a lot of black, you know, luxury BMWs and Audis, the, you know, the A8s and the 7 Series with black tinted windows. And everybody knows those are government, local government officials generally riding around in those cars that were purchased with generally considered to be ill-gotten gains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're cracking down on this advertising publicly, but I, I'm interested, I'd be interested to know if they've been sending more... Uh, low-key memos to, to tell the local government folks to, to stop being such hogs. Charlie? And part of the story was to uh, discourage the, uh, I think the phrase was, worship of foreign brands and products. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that literally tomorrow, Disney is breaking ground outside of Shanghai in <laughs> partnership with a government-owned company on a theme park. So, as so as, it's okay to be a foreign product as long as the government has an economic interest in your success. Well, and... and uh, I don't know. Is is Disney considered to be luxury? I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. But who knows? Uh, back to something that you were touching on, Tim. In terms of where does this go? How does this get followed up? Is it possible that the government could take this a step further? Again, we're talking about outdoor ads. Is the next step that they go to ads in print publications or online ads? You know, the next step would be if they actually prevent certain segments of the population from wearing. Or, or, you know, exposing these types of luxury goods. You know, it inspires a lot of envy to see someone walking around with a Louis Vuitton or, a, you know, Hermes bag or something along those lines. And that's one, re- one reason why there's such a black market or gray market knockoff culture in China, because people really do put a lot of stock in the brands that they carry around with them. Um, but again, you know, this is part of a larger plan by the Chinese government to to try to, on the one hand, make consumption at the top end less ostentatious, while at the same time they try to even out economic development and make the you know hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who have been left behind by China's economic miracle over the last 25 years start to feel and be actually a little bit more wealthy down the line. And that's, so I'm pretty sympathetic to the government. I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to the government. I'm just saying uh, in terms not. of how to uh, explain what they're doing. You know, because the thing is, I think of a lot of Americans and American government officials, you know, see the Chinese government as being almost completely unpenetrable. You know, they're just this totalitarian body that, you know, rules with an iron fist. And I think their actions are, are generally a lot more explainable when you start looking at them through the right prisms. And, and in this case, it's, you know, th- there's a whole context of actions they've been doing over the past few years to try to even out development because I think they really do fear uprising. I mean, ultimately, I think there's going to be political change in China, and I would be in favor of that change just from the standpoint of having to get a visa to the country. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a hassle and a half. But, <laughs> the um, Louis Vuitton revolution, basically. Well, you know, uh, well, you know it, but it's not the Louis Vuitton revolution because it's not the rich people who would rise up. You know, in, in Tiananmen Square yeah. in 1989, that was, you know, the educated folks rising up, and the rural farmers were the ones who supported the government. The next revolution is going to be the complete opposite. Because the educated folks have all sorts of money and they feel great. And they've been given a lot of freedom in the tier one cities to sort of move around and, and, and act more Western. Um, and the people who are, are upset now 
are the, are the hundreds of millions of rural Chinese who, who have been left behind and are still very, very poor. And that's the problem. You know, if they crack down on intellectualism after 89, what they need to crack down on now to prevent revolution is, is you know, an unbalanced economic growth. The Wall Street Journal reported that Google is working on a major overhaul of YouTube that includes a plan to create 20 channels and spend as much as $100 million to create original programming. Charlie Travers, what do you think of the plan? I would say I have mixed feelings about it, Chris. On the one hand, you could say a company shouldn't spend a significant amount of money getting away from their bread and butter uh, business. Um, but on the flip side, you know, they have a very, you know, questionably, it's, it's arguably valuable kind of commodity in uh, YouTube. Uh, they generate far more viewers than Netflix or uh, Hulu. I think uh, it was a tenfold margin, according to Nielsen in February. The problem from generating advertising revenue is that, you know, the, the viewers don't stay around very long. You know, you tend to go to YouTube and look for like a three-minute sports clip or, you know, some little funny uh, comedy video, what have you. And so maybe their hope is to generate, you know, maybe... Be 20 to 30 minute shows. I'm not really entirely sure what the plans are at this point. And then the $100 million could, you know, theoretically generate an attractive return if the ad revenue goes up. Um, so you know, I'll take a wait and see approach on this. James? Well, the beauty used to be that YouTube had cheaper or, or didn't pay for content. And that's kind of what, what got them famous. Content is not necessarily a profitable game. So we'll see. I mean, they're putting their toe in the water. They do have the eyeballs, but but I'm with Charlie. I'm a little bit skeptical. Yeah, and, and just to remind everyone that YouTube was bought by Google in November 2006 for $1.65 billion. Right. At some point, if you're a Google shareholder, aren't you running out of patience with this really expensive toy that Google well, bought? I, I think the estimates are that they'll do a, a billion in revenue next year. Uh, so, if, you know, if the you know, even within margins, you can kind of start to uh, make that a, a worthwhile acquisition over time. But I, I would agree it's taken a long time to get to a point of even talking about profitability out of that segment. I mean, the one, the one thing to point out is that this, you know, in the context of Google writ large, the acquisition of YouTube and the $100 million they're going to spend on, on content? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's, you know, it's chump change. Um, but there is, I think there is one clear group of winners in all of this. And those are my buddies living in a group home in Long Beach, California, <laughs> hoping to get paid to make internet comedy videos. And, yep. and, and all of their brethren in the union out there who currently just sort of wander around California with their handheld video cameras trying to do funny stuff. Now I think they might want to get their own channels. <laughs> if you are Netflix, um, how worried are you about this and where does this fit? Because Netflix has uh, seemingly a growing list of competitors. We talked earlier in the week about Dish Network buying Blockbuster as they presumably look to ramp up to take on Netflix. Um, there are a lot of X factors out there, and it's a landscape that, frankly, seems to be changing by the week. Um, where do you think uh, this sits in terms of Netflix's uh, worry list? Is uh, Google number one just by virtue of their deep pockets? I, I think they have to be concerned, but it's, it's a different business model. Um, you know, YouTube will still remain an advertising-supported service, whereas with Netflix, you pay a, a pretty modest uh, monthly fee for high-quality original content in its own right. You know, I, I, you know, with different types of content, it's not you know mutually exclusive where consumers are picking one over the other. Uh, there, there's room for both, honestly. Uh, what is your favorite online video experience that you've had, Charlie? Uh, some of my favorite videos are from Funny or Die with Zach Galifianakis series Between Two Firms. <laughs> 
where he has you know little five minute interviews with uh, celebrities like Natalie Portman and Steve Carell. Those are good. They are you know you'll just cry laughing watching these. James, I was trying to learn a language, Chris. It might have been Chinese one time, and I was watching these YouTube videos, and I clicked on one, and it turns out it was some bikini girl teaching you Chinese, which was not what I was expecting or wanting. But then the machine <laughs> figures that's but, what but I you, always want to see. You didn't, you didn't mind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I closed it out eventually, but, um, <laughs> but, but so now whenever I start up, it's like here, based on your previous viewing history, here's what we suggest. So I'm uh, worried my yeah. wife's going to see this and think that's what I was watching. But but honey, it's not the, not like it seems. <laughs> Tim Hansen. Uh, you're learning Chinese, aren't you? Is that how you're learning with with the video? Uh, I guess some uh, good ones to show. Uh, no, please keep those. To <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see your browsing history. Um, uh, for my Chinese, I've been using the Rosetta Stone product, and but the best way is to actually talk to people who speak the language. Uh-huh. That's an aside. My favorite YouTube video has got to be the. Um, three-story water slide that some kids built in their backyard which goes down it starts on the roof of that apparently their parents left for the weekend these high school kids <laughs> i would think so decide yeah. <laughs> i don't know um three-story water slide it starts on the roof of the house curls all the way down to the bottom and then you know ends with a launch and then there was like an eight-foot gap between the slide and this pool like inflatable kiddie pool of water <laughs> And did the, did the guy make it? Well, they, they kept going and going. You know, there were all the kids who were participating were doing There were probably eight to ten guys involved. And they, they made it. And everybody was celebrating. And then the video ends with one kid just missing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, anything involving, like, teenage boys, <laughs> like, free time, oh! and lack of parental supervision oh, is great. Yeah. Those are, <laughs> yep. Some good tips. All right. Charlie Travers, James Early, Tim Hansen. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank you, Chris. Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Be sure to check out Motley Fool Money this weekend on iTunes, online, and on radio stations across America. Our special guest is Becky Quick from CNBC. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.